But until that special birthday trip, I never knew that my father had bought them for her. And it wasn't long before Jaguar heard, but nothing compared to the stir made by Mr. Oscar Wilde. It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. What a pleasure it is for me to be with you every time that you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. Today, some talk about holidays, especially birthdays. Dolores Hydock tells us how her father was a holiday fanatic who went all out for every occasion. Her mother, on the other hand, never cared for them, except for birthdays. So this is Dolores Hydock with a personal tale of various holidays, because whether they're good or bad, crazy or peaceful, beloved or dreaded, they sure can be memorable. This story is called Birthday Gift from Dolores Hydock, here on The Appleseed. Birthdays were the only holiday my mother cared anything about. The rest of the holidays, she would have been just as happy to scratch off the calendar. As far as she was concerned, holidays were just a lot of headache and hassle. Christmas was the worst, of course, with all of its baking and buying and wrapping and shopping. She was never sentimental about Christmas. It was my dad who loved Christmas. My dad, every year early in December, would head out into the wilds of the Boy Scout Christmas tree lot and with his bare hands, select a nine-foot spruce, (laughs) strap it on top of the black and white Impala, drive it home, bring it into the living room, set it up triumphantly like it was some kind of a trophy he had won in the forest. Fed up with flimsy Christmas tree stands, not equal to the task of supporting his trophy trees. One year, he finally just made his own Christmas tree stand, welded one out of wrought iron. It had screws and spikes sticking into the middle. It looked like some kind of medieval torture device. (laughs) There was a trough for wet sand that encircled the base of the tree. The thing must have weighed 200 pounds. And while there was never any danger that the tree would fall over, there was some concern that the living room floor might give way. My dad liked things sturdy. And he loved Christmas. But to my mother, Christmas was just a lot of work. The other holidays were nearly as bad, especially the summer holidays, because on each of the summer holidays, the major ones, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, and Labor Day, my dad would cart the five of us out to Mineral Spring Park for a picnic at 5 (laughs) a.m. Five in the morning, when it was still dark. My dad hated crowds, hated having to fight for a parking space, hated having other people's noisy kids interfere with his day off. And so early in his career as a father, he came up with what seemed to him a perfect plan. We would have breakfast picnics (laughs) up before dawn. Three sleepy kids, one grumpy mother, and my enthusiastic dad would pile into the black and white Chevy or in the early days the pea soup green Hudson Hornet with the back seat the size of Rhode Island. We would drive out to Mineral Spring Park at the edge of town where we would be, no surprise, the only people there. 
My dad would start a fire in one of the grills. My mother would set a picnic table with a red and white check cloth, plates and cups. We kids would go play in the woods. And then when the fire was hot, my dad would make breakfast, the only meal I ever saw him cook. Scrambled eggs with little pieces of bacon chopped up in it and home fries. Thick slices of potato fried up with onions and bacon grease. The best part, the crispy brown bits that had to be scraped from the bottom of the pan. By 9 a.m., when the other early bird picnickers were arriving, we were packing up to leave. Now that's the way to do it, my dad would say, immensely pleased with himself for having come up with such a perfect plan. Get the family fun requirement out of the way early enough to have plenty of day left to do something really useful. (laughs) Build a 400-pound TV stand, maybe, or weld together a metal towel rack for the bathroom where it would leave four permanent circular indentations in the linoleum floor and would still be there in its original spot when they sold the house 43 years later. So, picnic over, we'd come home, my dad would start some project, we kids would go out and play, my mother would be left to clean up the mess. Two frying pans encrusted with burnt-on potato and a thick layer of charcoal soot on the bottoms, a tablecloth stained with Kool-Aid and jelly smears, and three sets of children's play clothes with grass stains on the seats. What was not to love about holidays? (laughs) The week before Thanksgiving was inevitably the week that my dad would finally get around to painting some part of the house he'd been meaning to paint for months. He'd usually finish up the painting project around Tuesday of the holiday week so that by the time all the company arrived for Thanksgiving dinner on Thursday, the house would still have that good, appetite-enhancing, fresh paint smell. (laughs) To this day, the brand name that my mother most associates with Thanksgiving is not Butterball, but (laughs) Sherwin-Williams. Easter required my mother to be the careful referee of the precise allocation of candy across three identical Easter baskets because my oldest sister would take her school ruler and measure the chocolate bunnies and count the jelly beans by color to make sure no one got any more than she did. My mother also had to navigate taking three girls shopping for Easter outfits, three girls who differed widely in size, shape, and state of adolescent irritation. But my mother got back at us for that, though, because every year, at least when we were still small, on the Saturday before Easter, the day before Easter, she would line us up on three chairs in the kitchen, drape us from neck to knee in long plastic capes, and administer the dreaded Tony Home Permanent. (laughs) Overnight, the frizz would explode in the little poofs above each ear so that the next morning, in spite of or maybe because of all the barrettes and hair ornaments we used to try to tame the frizzy poofs, we would arrive at church on Easter Sunday morning looking like a trio of French poodles in patent leather shoes. So holidays, my mother could have happily done without. But birthdays, birthdays were just cake and celebration. And sometimes she would celebrate the whole week of a birthday, not just a single day. And so knowing how much my mother loved birthdays, my two sisters and I thought that we should do something really special for her 80th birthday. And we decided that we should all go to Paris. Paris, my mother said when we suggested it to her. I've never been to Paris. I'd like to ride that special Millennium Ferris wheel while it's still up. I don't think I'll be around for the next one. (laughs) 
Well, that trip to Paris was unforgettable in so many ways, but the most unforgettable thing about it was not anything I ever expected. It was not the way the January sunlight filtered through the stained glass windows in Notre Dame Cathedral, or the taste of crusty French bread and café au lait and little left-bank bistros, not even the astonishing view of the city from the top of that Millennium Ferris wheel. It was a gift that I got on that trip from the birthday girl, the gift of a story, a family story that was completely new to me. You know how it is. You imagine that you have heard every single possible family story at least 426 times over. But there we were, waiting in line to get into the Louvre, and Mother was chattering on, as she often did. I was looking around. I was only half listening, I confess. And suddenly I realized she was telling a story I'd never heard before. It was a story about my father and the day that he came home with a large pink cardboard box from Martin's, a downtown ladies' dress shop, a box that contained two dresses that fit her perfectly, They were for her to wear when they would go out dancing. I remembered those dresses. I would have been about six at the time. One of them was made of red taffeta. It had a scoop neck and tiny bows all over the full skirt that made a rustly sound when she'd turn. The other dress was sheer black organdy over black silk, and it shimmered like diamonds when she'd move. It had a wide black patent leather belt that she polished with Vaseline and she'd wear it with high-heeled, open-toed, patent-leather shoes. Sometimes she'd let me sit and watch as she got dressed up to go out dancing with my dad. I'd sit there on her bed, the chenille bedspread carving swirly patterns in the backs of my legs. She'd finish off with a dab of Chanel number 5 behind each ear and sometimes a dab for me too. And though I didn't really like the smell of it, I loved feeling elegant and grown up and I didn't care if my sisters held their noses when I walked by. They were just jealous. (laughs) And I would go to sleep those nights dreaming of swishy dresses and red lipsticky kisses and the clickety-click sound of high-heeled shoes on the stairs. And so I remembered those dresses. But until that special birthday trip, I never knew that my father had bought them for her that my father had walked into a downtown ladies' dress shop and picked out those dresses, and they fit her perfectly, and she liked them. (laughs) My father was a toolmaker. I'd seen his short, strong hands do lots of things. I'd seen his hands wield a blowtorch as he scraped paint off the front porch or picked black walnuts from trees that grew wild down by the train yards or chains on the tires of the black and white Chevy on snowy Sunday mornings. I'd seen my father's hands do all those things, but I had never seen my father's hands and circled around her waist or caressing her face. They were old-fashioned parents. You didn't do things like that in front of the children. But those dresses were beautiful dresses, and they fit her perfectly. And I had never thought before about my father knowing the curve of my mother's body or the way that red taffeta would make her eyes shine. I never knew any of that until that special birthday trip. 
We got into the Louvre, spent hours in that museum looking at breathtakingly beautiful images, Monet's Renoir's, the Mona Lisa herself. But the image, the breathtakingly beautiful image that will stay with me forever from that trip is the picture of a handsome young man in a brown felt fedora handing his wife a large pink box that contained not just dresses, but an invitation to dance, to music, just the two of them could hear. Birthday Gift, a story from Dolores Hydock here on the Appleseed. It's going to be a great hour. We're going to bring you a story called 13 Quilts from Michael Reno Harold, a wonderful songwriter and storyteller. We're going to hear from Simon Brooks with a story called Jaguar and Hare. We'll hear from Anne Rutherford with a story called Wild Roses from a collection called The Habit of Joy, stories of living true to ourselves. And we'll hear a Bill Greenfield story, Bill Greenfield the Big Old Bear from Joseph Bruchak from a collection of Adirondack tall tales. But first, let's, uh, before we go to a break, hear an entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. My son, Skyler, is a grown-up now. But when he was 11, a million years ago it seems, he took to learning magic tricks. And we have a family friend who in those days was a fine jewelry salesman by day and by night a professional magician. How do you like that? Well, he had Skylar hooked, not on the jewelry stuff, on the magic stuff. Now, we had seen our friend do tricks at parties and on stage. The trick that seemed to get the biggest rise out of whatever audience he was performing for is a simple trick that he did right up close. And somehow, over the course of the trick, the victim's watch winds up on the magician's wrist magically. I mean, I've seen people panic for a moment as they rub their wrists, somehow unable to believe that the watch they were wearing only a moment ago has been unbuckled and spirited away and is on the magician's wrist. And nearly every time I've seen the trick, there's the tiniest moment in the victim's face of wondering if the magician plans to return the watch. He always does, of course. It's a spectacular trick. It's awesome. I've never seen anyone catch on. Well, at 11 years old, my son Skyler wasn't up to swiping watches yet. He was starting a little more simply. His favorite trick in those days involved squeezing a single red spongy ball of foam into a tiny little wad, placing it carefully in my clenched fist. He says the magic words, and I open my hand. And there are two balls there instead of just the one that went in there when I was looking. And while I'm gawking at those two balls, he takes those two balls and wads them up and he puts them back in my fist. And there are more magic words. And I open my hand again and there are three balls there. I mean, it's incredible. And even as I'm applauding that trick, he takes those three sponge balls and wads them up together. And before I can blink, they've magically become four. Abundance. Bounty. That's what the red sponge ball trick was all about. And I liked Skylar's style. I mean, our friend's watch-stealing trick was a complete gas. It was awesome. 
but it makes me wary. It's about the precarious nature of the things we treasure. It's about scarcity, right? It reminds me of the world that I find myself living in if I'm not careful. The world of watching my back, of guarding my stuff, lest it creep away in the night. The world, given half the chance, would provide ample reason for a body to feel that way all the time, right? I mean, the world we live in these days. But Schuyler's Spongeball trick is every bit as accurate a model of the world I live in, too, if I think about it. I mean, I can hardly turn around without coming face to face with some kind of Spongeball abundance. I mean, when I go home today, someone might have sneaked over and left a sack of fresh plums on my doorstep. I mean, it has happened before. And I might still be reeling from that gift when I get home from work tomorrow afternoon and discover that my neighbor might have shoveled the snow off my front walk. I mean, it's entirely likely. It's happened before. And I wasn't sick or out of town or stuck with a broken shovel or anything that would have given him any better reason for shoveling my walk than to think that I might be delighted to benefit from the spongeball blessings of a shoveled walk. Ask and ye shall receive, it says somewhere. And we resolve to, and then, wouldn't you know it, we turn around to find blessings strewn out before us that we never even thought to ask for. Far be it for me to second-guess the cosmic reasons behind those surprise gifts, but it's almost as if there's someone out there who simply enjoys seeing us delighted. And I do know this. I've watched 11-year-old Skyler do that spongeball trick for his friends, And I love to see the look on the face of his victim when he opens his hand and red sponge balls go rolling and bouncing off in all directions. Squeals of incredulity and delight have filled the house as that trick gets pulled on some unsuspecting uninitiate. So let me keep my watch on and let Skylar keep filling my hand with red sponge balls. If you come over, he'll fill your hand too. He's a tricky kid after all. And I like his style. Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. The sharing of personal memories and stories around the living room or the kitchen table, that can make for memories that last a lifetime, whether in good times or bad. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back with a story called 13 Quilts from Michael Reno Harrell. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a story from Dolores Haddock called Birthday Gift. And you heard about learning magic tricks with sponge balls in a memory about my son, who's now a grown-up guy in an entry in the Radio Family Journal. Up next, we've got a story from Michael Reno Harold. It's called 13 Quilts. The winter months are the coldest of the year, which for many of us means it's time to get cozy under layers and layers of soft, fuzzy blankets or quilts. This was never hard for Michael's family growing up because his mother loved to make quilts and the house was 
covered in them. So let's listen to this funny and relatable personal tale about staying warm, or at least trying to, while going to bed and waking up in the morning. Thirteen Quilts from Michael Reno Harrell on the Appleseed. My mama, she makes quilts. We got 13 on each bed and at least two feather pillows for each and every head. And then you got two sheets and one chenille bedspread. When I was growing up, we lived in an old drafty farmhouse and in the winter you'd sit around in the living room and we had what was called a warm morning wood stove. Now why they called it a warm morning, I don't know, because during the night it would go completely out, and when you got up in the morning, it wasn't warm. <laughs> but it was warm when you went to bed, but the house was only warm in the living room. And I remember when it was time to go to bed, I was always the last one because I'd go over there and stand next to that wood stove and I would get my blue jeans smoking hot, you know. <laughs> I'd turn around and I'd try to get all areas of my blue jeans as hot as they could be because I knew that I was going to have to dash down that cold hallway and up them steps. And when I opened the door to my bedroom, that arctic wind was going to come across that tundra. <laughs> and I was going to look around and see those sides of frozen beef hanging there. And I was going to jerk my clothes off and jump into my flannel jammies and I was going to dive on to that iceberg <laughs> there in the middle of my room, the one with the 13 quilts and the two sheets and the chenille bedspread. And you dive onto that and you get your toes started down between them sheets. And it's a proven fact that a cotton sheet can actually maintain a temperature 30 to 34 degrees below ambient room temperature. And in my house, ambient room temperature was right about freezing anyway. So you would sit there in your jammies with your toes between them two sheets, and you would work your way down like a toe length at a time, trying to work your way down under them 13 quilts and them two sheets, and the chenille bedspread, and you finally warm one toe length at a time, you'd warm your way down in there until you were laying down there like kind of like a kind of like a mummy in a sarcophagus, you know. <laughs> Do you know how hard it is for an Appalachian storyteller to work that word in? <laughs> there you are laying like a mummy in a sarcophagus. Except that a mummy would have a better chance of turning over because you cannot lift 13 of my mother's quilts with your shoulder. It can't be done. It was not until years later when we got central heat that I discovered that people actually slept on their sides, you know. <laughs> and you would be laying there. And, and after about 20 minutes, even though ambient room temperature was down around 34 degrees, after about 20 minutes, them 13 homemade quilts started to work. And after about 25 minutes, the outside temperature in the room might be 34 degrees, but down there underneath them 13 homemade quilts and that chenille bedspread, it was 98.6. And you're laying there 
And you got that chenille bedspread pulled up right under your nose so you can just barely breathe. And you got it pulled up over the top of each ear. And you're laying there. And off in the distance, you hear little fairy bells, and the Sandman is coming through that crack in the window, and he flies over and starts sprinkling that little sand in your eyes, and you're just about to just about to drift off to sleep, about to drift off to sleep, and you forgot to go to the bathroom. And you close your eyes and you put your knees together real hard and you think maybe it'll pass. And it ain't passing. And you don't want to get up because it's a long way down the hallway to the facilities and they ain't heated either. So finally you give up and you decide, okay, so you sort of worm your way out of there. You wriggle around. You look like a mechanic on one of them dollies coming out from under a Dodge truck, you know. <laughs> Finally get out from under there, and you sit there in a little ball with your toes still between the sheets, and you reach over and you pull that chain on the lamp, you know, over on the nightstand, and you sit there for just a second while your eyes get used to the light and you reach over there next to your alarm clock where you keep that sheet of notebook paper and you get that sheet of notebook paper and you slide it there beside you between them two sheets because you know when you come back from them facilities you're going to want a bookmark to find your place in them sheets My mama, she makes quilts. We got 13 on each bed and at least two feather pillows for each and every head. Then you got two sheets and one chenille bedspread. Thank you. 13 Quilts, a story for you by Michael Reno Harrell. So far, it's been an hour filled with personal experiences with that entry of the Radio Family Journal and that story from Michael Reno Harrell and at the top of the hour, the story from Dolores Hydock. Here's a folk tale. It's called Jaguar and Hare, and it's shared for you by Simon Brooks. In this story, overheard mumbling voices set Hare to thinking about how he might use his wits to keep from being eaten. Here's Simon Brooks with Jaguar and Hare on the Appleseed. Once, many years ago, in South America, there lived an elderly couple in a ram-shackled hut. They were very poor. They had few possessions, and among them were two pets, a young jaguar and a hare. Well, one day, Hare and Jaguar heard this noise. And then they heard voices mumbling in the background. We're going to have to eat them. We're going to have to eat them. And Jaguar said, 
They, they just said, they just said that they're going to have to eat us. No, 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 said Hare. They said they're going to heat us up some hot chocolate and they're going to give it to me first. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm sure that they said that they were going to, they were going to eat us. No, no, no. Look, who's got the biggest ears here? You or me? You've got tiny little ears. You can't hear a thing with those things. Look at my big, long ears. Look, if you don't believe what, what I'm saying to you, why don't you get into my cage and find out? And they'll bring you the hot chocolate first, and I won't get any, but that's all right. I'm selfless, said the hare. So Jaguar said, mm, All right, then, I suppose. And he backed up into the tight little wooden cage, and hare shut the door, dropped the latch, and scampered out. And it wasn't long before Jaguar heard, And the old man came in with his knives, sharpening them. He looked around, once he'd seen Jaguar in the cage, and said, Well, if Hare's not here, we'll have to eat the Jaguar. Well, Jaguar broke free of the wooden cage with all of his strength and tore between the old man's legs and out into the forest. Why, that scoundrel, I'm going to find him and I'm going to eat him. I'm not going to give him a second chance. Why, he tried to trick me into being eaten by those people. Hot chocolate, my ears. <laughs> and off he went, sniffing through the forest, trying to find Hare's scent. There it is. And he followed the scent. And as he made his way through the jungle, the day ended and night began, and a full moon began to rise high above the trees, its silver light shooting down between the branches and the leaves. But Jaguar blended in well with the shadows. The trail of the scent led him to a cave where there was a fire already burning in the entrance. Jaguar could not see past the fire for it was so bright. But inside, Hare could see the outline of Jaguar outside, and he backed up to the far wall of the cave and pressed himself up against that wall in fear. He waited for Jaguar to come in, his knees knocking somewhat. Jaguar strode past the fire and spied Hare. Well, hello, friend, said Jaguar. Friend, friend, said Hare, but, 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 but I've never seen you before in my life, he said, pushing himself tighter against the back wall. Yes, I think we've friends. We used to live together, don't you remember, in that ramshackled hut, with the old man and the old woman who were going to give us some hot chocolate? Hot chocolate? Hot cho I don't know what you're talking about, said Hare. Yes, I'm sure. Well, I'm not going to give you a second chance, I'm going to eat you. Well... Don't eat me. I'm, uh, we can eat together. You see, I've got this nice warm fire going. Hare pushed himself further, back against the wall. And, 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 and I could cook supper for us, only I'm holding this wall up, you see. What do you mean? Well, after I made the fire, I, I saw this big crack and I heard it pop and I pushed myself against the wall so it wouldn't fall down. You see, and if it falls down now, well... Then I won't eat anything, and, and you'll be alone. And, and, well, if you help push this wall up, I know of an ideal piece of wood to prop it up. And I'll go and get this piece of wood and come back, prop it up, and we'll have supper together. Just like old friends. Um, uh, just like new friends. Yes, just like new friends. I'm not sure if I believe you. But, but I can't move anyway, so you're going to either eat me or I'm going to get crushed by the wall one way or the other. It's, I've got nothing to lose. Hmm said the naive jaguar, and he put his paws up against the wall above Rabbit. And Rabbit moved slowly away. 
And then as soon as he got to the entrance of the cave, he bolted deep, deep, deep into the woods, laughing and joking all the way. Jaguar didn't hear this. But he began to wonder if he'd been tricked again. He looked around the wall and could see no cracks. He very gently and very carefully took some of his weight off the wall, and it didn't seem to give. It seemed to stay right where it was, and he eventually let go of the wall altogether, and it did not come tumbling down on him. Why, that rabbit, why, that rotten old hare, I'm going to get him no third chances for him. No way. The moon was higher in the sky now than ever before, and he found the scent easily, and he quietly made his way, and he heard in the distance... I tricked him twice. <laughs> oh, I'm so clever, I'm so clever. I'm so clever, I'm so clever, I'm so clever. Jaguar came right underneath where Hare was, for he was hanging onto a vine, bouncing on this vine, up and down, up and down, enjoying himself immensely. Well, Jaguar soon put a stop to that. He took his claws and he held onto the vine, and he pulled it and pulled it. Until it was so tight it couldn't be pulled any more. Hare looked down and saw Jaguar in the shadows. Uh oh! Jaguar retracted his claws. <laughs> Hare went flying through the air. <laughs> Until pff, he landed on the moon. And now. When there's a full moon, if you look up into the sky, you will see Hare is still there, looking down upon us, wondering how he can make his way back to Earth. You have been listening to the storyteller, Simon Brooks, accompanied by... Rick Barrett on mandolin Maureen Burford on fiddle and Steve Glazer on guitar This production was made off the grid at Pepperbox Studios, Chelsea, Vermont Recorded and engineered by Christina Stikos For more information please visit my website www.diamondscree.com Thank you very much for listening Jaguar and Hare, a story by Simon Brooks here on The Appleseed. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with a story from Anne Rutherford and another from Joseph Bruchak here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard Jaguar and Hare, a story from Simon Brooks. And before that, 13 Quilts, a story about keeping warm by Michael Reno Harrell. And up next, we've got a story from Anne Rutherford. This is a story called Wild Roses uh, from uh, a collection of stories called Habit of Joy, stories of living true to ourselves. Here's Anne on The Appleseed. What can be in those mysterious parcels that arrive for Mr. Sullivan at the train station? I have no idea, but, Dora, I wager you might. I kept a dignified silence, conscious of my reputation. I still felt new in town. It had been just a year ago, 1881, that King Tabor hired my husband Daniel as chief mining engineer for his matchless silver mine, moving us to Leadville, Colorado. I dreaded leaving our home in Virginia for a rough and tumble mining town. But in Leadville, I found not only bars and saloons, but a thriving life of culture, including an opera house featuring plays and lecturers from around the globe. But nothing compared to the stir made by Mr. Oscar Wilde when he visited Leadville in spring of 1882 as part of his American speaking tour. After his visit, Mr. Sullivan, Daniel, and I would never be the same. During that visit, King Tabor arranged a reception for Mr. Wilde deep in the matchless mine, thinking he would not dare descend. But to send, Mr. Wilde did, folded his long limbs into a miner's cart and went down, down, down to join the men at table lit only by miner's headlamps. The food was mostly liquid nourishment. Mr. Wilde demonstrated his appetite for spirits matched his appetite for art. Word spread, and the opera house was full to bursting for his lecture that evening, but hoots and catcalls greeted him when Mr. Wilde walked on stage dressed in purple sackcloth coat and breeches, black silken hose, low shoes with bright buckles, and a frill of lace at each wrist. In his hand, a single white lily, his signature flower. But, as Mr. Wilde began to speak, the crowd quieted. His voice was clear, strong, eager to convey his ideas to us. He spoke of the need for beauty in our outer life to manifest the inner qualities to which we all aspire. That a home, created with order and grace, can soothe modern man's anxious, discontented spirit. That is what I try to do for Daniel. Create an oasis where he can recover from the rigors of his day. Mr. Wilde quoted Keats and Whitman to say that every human soul, no matter how wretched its existence, longs for some touch of beauty as a reminder that life is more than just endless toil. A great huzzah followed his lecture, and Daniel joined a throng of admirers that carried Mr. Wilde off in triumph. Making my own way out, I passed a miner sitting near the back, still gazing at the stage. His name was Sullivan, a rough sort. Daniel said he did the work of three men below ground and caused the trouble of a dozen above. Daniel had stood his bail after a brawl in the taverns more than once. 
Mr. Sullivan was a solitary man, never married, lived alone in a cabin off the cemetery road. I was surprised to find him at a social event. He looked up as I approached, and I did not wish to snub him. Uh, well, Mr. Sullivan, can Leadville ever hope to attain the kind of beauty Mr. Wilde espouses? I spoke in jest, but he replied quite earnestly, There's always room for hope, ma'am. His eyes were very bright. The next day I was at my sewing when Katie came in. There's a man wants to speak to you, ma'am. I've put him in the kitchen. To my surprise, it was Mr. Sullivan. He barely looked at me but stared at his hands, creasing his hat over and over. I had to lean forward to catch his words. I wondered, ma'am, if you knew those poems, the ones Mr. Wilde read from when he spoke. This was delicate ground indeed, as the request clearly cost him dear. Well, I believe he quoted Keats, the fellow from Chicago, who talked about the lilacs. No, oh, no, that was Whitman. Oh, I have that piece. Let me fetch it. I returned from Daniel's study with the book. I would be delighted to lend it to you. He would not take it or meet my eyes. It's no good to me, ma'am. Making my name is all the letters I have. I was mortified at my thoughtlessness, and we each stood looking down, my fingers white and tense around the book, his hands scrubbed but still veined black with dirt, creasing his hat over and over. Then some stray shaft of grace fell upon us, for I saw my hands open the pages. It has been a long while since I have had the joy of reading poetry aloud. Would you give me that pleasure? Mr. Sullivan gave me a bright, fierce glance, nodded, then moved to look out the window as I began to read Whitman's words. When lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed, amid the great star early drooped in the western sky at night, that was the first of many such visits. When the weather warmed, we sat on the back porch, the words of Whitman and Keats spilling out into the fresh mountain air. Mr. Sullivan said only, Goodbye, as he took his leave. But later, I would find tokens on the back porch a polished stone, three brown eggs, a bundle of mountain sage. I knew they were from him. Daniel teased that I had a suitor, but I did not feel so. I felt removed, as though I was an agent of providence, come to give this staunch and starving creature what he longed for. No, I err in saying I felt removed, for the poetry of the words touched me too, reminding me of thoughts and feelings long forgotten. Daniel sometimes joined us, we three sitting in curious contentment as day feathered into night and our voices rose and fell in the darkness. Word spread through town about Mr. Sullivan's visits in no time. His men wagged Daniel terribly, but he countered, Time spent sharing good verse is time well spent. 
Some thought Mr. Sullivan would profit more from hearing me read from the Bible, but we were quite content with Whitman and Keats. Daniel told me Mr. Sullivan had ceased brawling and now only stopped in the taverns for a jar of beer to carry home. When one of the drinkers jeered at him, saying he was drunk on poetry and no real man, Mr. Sullivan eyed him a long time, then replied, "'Guess I feel real enough,' picked up his beer, walked away. As if that weren't enough for the gossips, one Saturday in late May, Mr. Sullivan took the train to Denver and came back laden with brown paper parcels. Later that week, more parcels arrived for him at the station. Now, despite the suspicions of the ladies' auxiliary, I was as ignorant as anyone as to the contents. Eager as I was to know what project he had undertaken, I was loath to press him. But that next Sunday, when Daniel and I returned from church, Katie told us, Mum, that Mr. Sullivan came by. He wants you to be calling at his cabin this afternoon. <laughs> After our noon meal, Daniel and I set off to call on him. We talked of this and that as we walked up the road to the cemetery, but some impulse made us clasp hands and grow quiet as we went down the turnoff to Mr. Sullivan's cabin. It looked as ever, silvered boards in a clearing ringed by a rough stone wall, but the weeds and brambles that had surrounded it were all cleared away and carefully set in fresh-turned soil were rose bushes, fully a dozen rose bushes, wiry brown and green branches, and Mr. Sullivan kneeling among them, mounding soil around their roots. He looked up, saw us, and flushed quite red. Why, Mr. Sullivan, are these your mysterious parcels? Uh, yes, ma'am. He dusted off his knees, rose to his feet. Uh, some say it's foolish to try to raise them up this high, but the nurseryman down to Denver, he told me these were hardy enough to last with some careful tending. Well, no one can fault your efforts, Daniel said, looking at the well-pruned plants and the turned soil. We sat on the rough stone wall warmed by the late afternoon sun while Mr. Sullivan served us tea and shortbread. Why are you so partial to roses? I asked. My mother, she loved them. She had them as a girl back in Ireland, and no matter where we lived, she always got something to bloom in a can on the back porch or a jar at the kitchen window. A bit of brightness keeps the soul alive, she'd say. When she died, I came out here looking for a better life, but between the mine and the taverns, everything was dark again. His eyes rested on the rose bushes. But there is more to life than darkness. I have you and Mr. Wilde to thank for that. Without thinking, I leaned over and squeezed his hand. He smiled, then looked down. I felt tears on my cheek. Daniel took off his glasses and pretended to rub some soot from his eye. In the months and years that followed, Mr. Sullivan tended his roses. Some did not survive the harsh Colorado winters, but some did, under his vigilant care. Blooming, fragrant, luminous, under the crystal blue mountain sky. 
He remained a solitary creature, but on the morning of her wedding, every bride in Leadville would find a bouquet of roses on her doorstep, live and glowing in the summer, a fragile dried bunch in the winter. And the day after every burial, a cluster of roses would appear on the gravesite. Daniel was transferred to South America, and we lived abroad for some time. We got news of happenings from back home and heard with great regret of Mr. Sullivan's death, along with many other miners in the terrible cave-in of 1891. By the time Daniel's work called him back to Leadville, we found the town much changed from the high times of the silver rush. Late one afternoon, we drove up the new road to the cemetery. On the way, we stopped and walked far enough down the turnoff to see Mr. Sullivan's cabin. It was boarded up, garden-run riot, choked by brambles and weeds, but in the far corner against the stone wall, shielded from the wind and warmed by the stone, bloomed a pale pink rose. Daniel brought out his pocket knife. No, I said, leave it. Let it bloom where he planted when we got to the cemetery, there were many more headstones than the last time we were there. In one section, all of them bore the same date of death. 1891. All these. They're all from the cave-in, Daniel said. All these men. He walked among the graves, but I held back. I can't bear it. I can't bear it. To think of him dying down there in all that darkness Daniel was leaning down toward one of the gravestones here's his marker John Michael Sullivan born July 12, 1842 died wait he, he died a week later than all the rest of these fellas they got him out Dora they must have got him out I was crying freely. Daniel held out his hand. Come here, Dora. There's something you need to see. I stumbled toward him. He steadied my shoulders as I stooped toward the gravestone. It was simple. Name and dates carved in rough gray stone like all the rest. But not quite like all the rest. For all around the border of Mr. Sullivan's stone, someone had carved with a careful hand a garland of blossoming roses. Anne Rutherford with a story called Wild Roses here on the Appleseed. Now, it seems that just about every region has its tall tale folk heroes. We're talking about, uh, well, we could be talking about uh, Paul Bunyan or Pecos Bill or Sally Ann, Thunder Ann, Whirlwind. But uh, where Joseph Bruchek comes from, they're Bill Greenfield stories that people tell. And here's one of those. It's called Bill Greenfield and the Old Bear, an Adirondack folk tale shared by Joseph Bruchek here on The Appleseed. Bill Greenfield and the Big Old Bear 
One fine fall day, Bill Greenfield went out grouse hunting. For one reason or another on this particular day, Bill didn't take his special over-and-under hound, the one with two legs that pointed up and two that pointed down, but he did take his favorite double-barreled shotgun. Now, Bill believed in safety when he was afield, so it was his practice never to load his gun till he reached the spot where he was going to start hunting. He decided to take a shortcut through the thick woods over Forked Hill. Bill's mind was wandering a bit that day or he would have noticed the familiar path had one more rise in it than normal. As it was, he took two steps up onto what he thought was a little hill when that hill shook itself and threw him to the ground and Bill looked up to see rising on its hind legs above him the biggest bear he'd ever known. It had been sleeping right there in the middle of the path and Bill had disturbed its slumber. Well now, that big old bear was not happy. It let out a roar so loud that Bill was deaf for three weeks after that. The fact that he'd been deafened didn't make no never mind to Bill at that particular moment, though. Just then his ears were a lot less important to him than his feet. And Bill took off. His legs a-spinning so fast he wore a groove in the earth three foot wide and ten foot long. It was fortunate for Bill he moved as quick as he did. That big old bear took a great swipe at him. Its paw missed Bill, but the wind from it took Bill's hat right off his head and blew it all the way into Warren County. Bill kept his feet a-moving just as fast as he could. He figured he was leaving that bear far behind until he noticed he wasn't making any more forward progress than a slow saunter. He looked back over his shoulder and saw that dang bear sitting about 20 feet back with a smug look on its face and its claws hooked right into Bill's suspenders. Well, Bill reached down and unsnapped those suspenders quicker than a cat can lick its ear. Those suspenders popped back so fast that bear was knocked nigh a hundred yards as Bill took off like an arrow, holding his pants up with one end and clutching his empty shotgun with the other. Bill knew right where he was heading. There was a great elm tree half a mile down that path and Bill hightailed it for the elm. By now that big bear was galloping behind and getting closer with every stride. Bill reached that tree and swarmed up the trunk so quick he wore all the bark on one side off as smooth as if it had been draw shaved. In doing so, though, he had to drop that shotgun. He went up so fast that he climbed 40 feet above the top of the tree before he realized he'd run out of branches and had to climb back down through the air real fast before he began to fall. Then, wrapping both arms around a branch, Bill looked below. There at the bottom of the tree sat that big old bear looking up at him, sort of wistful. That bear was too heavy for tree climbing, and that old elm was too big for it to reach up to get Bill or to knock the tree down, and Bill smiled, figuring he was safe. Sooner or later, that old bear would get bored and move along. But that big old bear picked up Bill's shotgun. Now that bear must have seen other folks with guns before because it lifted that gun right up to its shoulder and pointed it up at Bill like it was about to shoot him out of the tree, as Bill later said, that bear was just about the smartest bear he ever did see. In fact, that old bear was so smart it realized there was something wrong. It snapped open the gun, peered down the breech, and got this disappointed look on its face when it saw the gun wasn't loaded. Bill sat up there in that tree feeling real thankful that all the shells for that shotgun were still safe in his coat pocket. Then, Bill said, that big old bear did its first dumb thing. It looked up at Bill and started making motions that took Bill a moment to understand. It was begging Bill to throw some shotgun shells down to it. 
Bill Greenfield and the Big Old Bear, shared for you by Joseph Bruchak here on The Appleseed. What a pleasure to have been with you today to share with you not only that story, but stories from Ann Rutherford, who told you the story of Wild Roses, Jaguar and Hare, that folktale from Simon Brooks, and of course you heard Michael Reno Harrell with 13 Quilts and uh, an entry in the Radio Family Journal about magic tricks with sponge balls and a story called Birthday Gift from Dolores Hydock. It's always a pleasure to be with you. This hour was written by Alyssa Mingorance. Our audio engineer is Stuart Foster. Our producer, Jeff Simpson. You can find us online at byuradio.org slash There's an archive there of all of the episodes of the show. More than a thousand episodes and thousands of stories for your listening pleasure anytime you like. You can also Google the Appleseed podcast and find something new just about every day on the Appleseed. You can reach out to us at theappleseed at byu.edu. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. We love to hear your stories. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.